Hey, what's up, headbangers and freaks? This is Jason McMaster on Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of that which we like to call Focus on Metal. And believe it or not, what I said was going to happen last week for this week is exactly what we're doing. That's right. We have a good chat with Greg Chason talking all about the brand new Kings of Dust release. That's right. New release out from Kings of Dust. It's got, of course, Greg from uh, Badlands, and uh, he's also was in Red, Red Dragon Cartel for a bit, and then also what uh, features uh, former uh, Red Dragon Cartel frontman Michael Thomas Beck. It's got uh, lead guitarist Ryan McKay from the Crash Street Kids, and then also uh, from one of the local Arizona bands, uh, Jimmy Taft from Surgical Steel on drums. And the whole thing was mixed and mastered at uh, Sound Vision Recordings in uh, in Mesa. So a lot of uh, a lot of Arizona stuff going into this one, as you'll hear as Richie talks with Greg Chason this week. So lots of good stuff from Greg, not only about the uh, new Kings of Dust release, but Richie also delves into, of course, a bit of Badlands history as well. So with that, why don't I just shut myself up and turn it over to Richie and Greg Chason. Hello. Is that that Greg Chason? This is me. Hey, Greg, it's Richie from Focus on Metal. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay. So where, where where are you? I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, I'm um, I'm just north of Boston, Massachusetts. Okay, but that's not where you're from, though. No, no, I'm I'm from the next parish over. I'm from Ireland. Yeah, I was gonna say that sounds like a bit of the Irish to me. Yeah, yeah, born there, moved here about nine years ago. Yeah, I love Ireland, though. You been there? Yeah, I went there when I was in Badlands. We did a show. I think we did one show there, but I always wanted to go back. You know. Um, when you're on tour, you don't really get enough time to see what you want to see. And I like to sightsee, so. Yeah, a lot of musicians are they're either one way or the other, especially singers. Singers tend to not want to go out, but some of the other guys just can't wait to get out when they get there. Yeah, Jake, Jake doesn't sightsee. I always roomed with him. So I'd just get up early in the morning, wherever we were at, whether it was in, you know, in England, Ireland, Scotland, or whether it was in... Uh, the states or japan and i'd get up and just leave and just wander around and see all the things there were to see and by the time we were scheduled you know by the time he woke up because everything was based around his schedule if there were interviews or whatever or sound check i'd come back and we'd be ready to go but i always went and saw everything there was to see nice nice um so what i want to talk about greg the new the new album of course um and then a a couple of general questions i really would love to talk about dusk I know that's your favorite Badlands record. Maybe get into that a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I am. I'm sure people probably ask you about the first two Badlands records. Um, I'm sure you're st- probably stick to death answering questions on those two. Um, you know, I mean, it kind of is what it is, and it's part of the history. And that's, you know, uh, you know, Jake has a resume before mine, and but Badlands, even though I did a lot of stuff before Badlands. Um, as far as on an international level, you know, Badlands is where my, you know, resume kind of starts. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm good with that, whatever. Okay. Um, I always ask the guitar players this question straight up. Um, how many guitars do you have in your house? Uh, bass guitars are, are, are six string. Probably at least 20. Okay. You would collect, are you, do you collect them? Um, not like, uh, for an investment or anything like that. I mean, I have, I play guitar as well as bass, but I'm just kind of a noodler on the guitar. I'm, I actually started on the bass where a lot of bass players started on the guitar and then kind of just transitioned over because someone needed a bass player. I actually started on the bass. So, um, I have probably at least 10 guitars here and another 10 bases, but I run a, I run a big guitar store here in Phoenix. It's a 6,000 square foot guitar store that has like four, man, 12 to 1400 instruments at any given time. So, I mean, I could have a lot more guitars here if I wanted, 
It's just that while I'm at the store all the time, I do have an extra number of guitars there that belong to me that are also sitting in the store. So I probably own 30 instruments. Hmm. So, Greg, what's your favorite bass that you own? I kind of I go back and forth. I have a, a, a B. I'm getting a potential spam call here. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Get rid of that. No problem. Okay. So um, I have an old BC Rich that they made for me in 1987 that uh that uh i that i like playing and then i have a couple of i was with esp for a, a while in the uh 90s and uh they made me a couple they made me a lot of bases but i have two of them left and they're basically designed to be like old 50s p bases and then i have a couple of uh 50s uh 50 style um fenders that were made in their custom shop so i don't have anything real vintage as far as like an old fender or an old thunderbird i've had plenty of them over the course of time but i i'm one of those kind of guys that if i want to buy a motorcycle i'll just sell a couple of bases and buy a motorcycle and then later on when i want to buy something else i'll sell the motorcycle and buy that and so i'm always just moving money from one place to another Mm. um because you said that, I'm going to ask, have you ever gotten rid of a bass and regretted it? Oh, yeah, all kinds of them. I mean, there's several, several, several. I had a uh, 1954 uh, Fender P bass that belonged to John Entwistle, who's one of my heroes. Oh, man. It was it was documented, and uh, I got it when I first got in Badlands. And then our managers didn't pay our taxes like they were supposed to. So I ended up selling it to, uh, the bass player in Tesla, Brian Wheat ended up buying it so I could pay my taxes. And I also had at the same time, a 64 Thunderbird, Gibson Thunderbird that I also sold to Brian Wheat. Um, uh, the way that our business was done wasn't the way that I would suggest anyone else do it. So I ended up getting rid of those two. There's plenty of vintage BC riches that I've had. I've had a half dozen 64 Thunderbirds, so a number of different things. Yeah, if I had, a, I could have had a little bit more uh, foresight, I, I would have kept some of them. It's funny you bring up Brian Wheat because um, I'm supposed to interview him in the next few weeks, so I'm going to ask him, does he still have them? You should ask him that. <laughs> uh, he, you know what? The price that he paid for the John Entwistle one, it had a picture of John Entwistle playing it and a letter of authenticity. I think I sold it to him for maybe $4,000, and I believe that thing's probably worth in the neighborhood of at least between twenty five and 30000 especially with the documentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the holy grail of basis for you? If you're, to able, if you're able to pick one from any musician in the past, which one would you pick? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know... <laughs> What I really always wanted, and I have never even seen one in person or played it, John Entwistle used to play a bass made by Warwick called a buzzard. And I know when he died, they sold some of them, and of course I couldn't afford to buy one. But if, I, if there's one bass that I'm looking for that I would love to have, it's a original Warwick buzzard bass. It, they don't look like a P bass at all. They're really strange looking. They're really, they look like a buzzard. And uh, if I could find one, I would probably try to figure out a way to buy it. I mean, I don't have anything where, I mean, like I said, if I could get some of my original bases back, but I can't think of any one base owned by any one person that um, would be like, oh, I'd give anything to have that. Having said that, I my first real good base was a 73 uh, Fender telecaster base they called it for a couple years and i bought it it took me a year uh, it took them a year to make it for me and i had it for a good long time and i changed pickups out and kind of didn't i routed out for different pickups and different switches and all kinds of crazy things because no one knew anything like that would be ever worth any money and then when i moved to california uh in 82 i sold a bunch of stuff to finance my move to california um I wish I had that back because it was the first good base I had. I had a couple of crappy bases before that, but this was the first good one. And now that I am thinking about it, BC Rich, I, before I was endorsed by them, I had a BC Rich Wave base, which is a 
not their most common models made out of bird's eye maple, really cool base. Again, sold it to pay for living and to pay for life. And I'd love to have that back as well. So mm. I was talking to um, guitarist Richie Cotson last week, mm. and he told me that the one guitar that he regretted getting rid of, he was actually able to get back about a year or so ago. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, now the chances of that now are pretty slim. There's a guy here in town that has a, a BC Rich bass that was made for me. It was made in all white. And um, I went. To, I used to uh, hang around at BC Rich a lot. I was really good friends with Bernie Sr. and also with uh, his youngest son, Joe. And I, we actually even had a band together, me and Joey, before uh, I got in Badlands. And uh, so they made me a lot of stuff. And they made me this white bass that kind of looked like a P bass, but it was a neck through. And I went down there. And they said, what do you, what color do you want to put on this white? And I took a handful, literally a handful of blue, bright blue paint and threw it on the base. And then on the back, I even put my thumbprint in the blue paint. And, uh, I forget where along the way I got rid of it. Well, there's a guy here in town that owns it. And I don't think he got it from me. Um, he got it from somewhere, but I've, he brought it down to the store that I run called Bizarre Guitar and Drum. And he brought it down there and I tried to buy it back from him. He didn't want to sell it, but he kept saying, if you ever want to play it on a record or do a show with it, I'd let you use it. And it's like, no, I don't need to use it. If you ever want to sell it, I'd, I'd buy it back. That is one I, I know where it's at and I'd love to get it back. I don't think I'm ever going to get it back. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, well that's the way it goes, Greg, with all these guitars over over the years. Um. So let's yep. let, let's start talking about Kings of Dust. Um, I'm looking at the I'm on, I'm looking at the liner notes in it, and I know a couple of years ago you were doing some shows at Red Dragon Cartel, and you said in the liner notes of this record that playing with them helps you rediscover be, that being in a band can be fun again. Had you fallen out of love with playing music and or being in a band? Well, what happened was I was playing in a lot of cover bands here in Phoenix, you know, just playing other people's music for, you know, playing at a bar where no one really gives a crap about the band. It's just kind of like your background noise and everyone's telling you to turn down because they can't talk and all, you know, they can't try to pick up a girl or whatever. And after a while that kind of, you know, because I, my background was, you know, original bands and being in a lot of original bands in LA before Badlands and then the whole Badlands thing, kind of soured me on it a little bit i i wasn't even sure if i wanted to keep playing I was just kind of doing it for the heck of it and i was i still had the kings of dust was kind of in its formative stages we were using another name and there were different musicians besides me and michael beck but i wasn't sure what was going to happen with that and then out of the blue i got offered to uh, do a red dragon cartel show in phoenix so i got together and I hadn't actually played with Jake since the nineties, early nineties. And we got together and played and it was, you know, I had a great time. I enjoyed the the drummer Jonas. I really liked and the singer Darren, I really liked and And, uh, they asked me to join the band and I went on tour with them and I kind of rediscovered from playing that one show and then doing another 40 to 60, however many shows we did made me realize that, you know, I'm probably the worst cover bass player in the world because I don't ever play anything like it is on the record. I just kind of do whatever whatever I want. And in Red Dragon Cartel or Badlands or Kings of Dust, I can do whatever I want, and it's the way it's supposed to be, as opposed to trying to play a Bon Jovi song and then playing it, a Bon Jovi song the way that Geezer Butler would play it, which probably isn't the most correct way to play it, but that's the way I like to do it. Hmm. I, I always got the impression, listening from interviews from, with yourself and Jake, and I've interviewed Anthony Esposito since the patina came out that you guys were always, it was always the art was first. And if it became successful, if it became successful, then so be it. But it was always about the music. And if you're in cover bands, that really is only about the money. It really is kind of about the money. And I don't have any extracurricular trappings. You know, I don't, I don't go to the bars to pick up girls. I don't drink, I don't do drugs. So the only other reason I'd be there to play, and I just thought for me personally, I'm not putting down anyone that plays in cover bands or whatever, 
But for me, it just reduced music down to the lowest common denominator, which was the hundred bucks a night. The thing I always enjoyed about playing original bands and especially something like Badlands, and I know what Anthony's talking about with Patina and what I do in Kings of Dust is it's music that we wrote not to try to make a bunch of money with, but because it's the kind of music that we wanted to write. It's what we were feeling inside. It's the emotion that we had when we were writing it. And um, that was way more important. I mean, if I, I'm kind of, you know, parodying Jake here because I've heard him say it a million times. I used to always do interviews with him. You know, him and I would do them together. It was never about the money. It was never about being a rock star. It was never about anything other than this is what we do. This is what we write. This is what we create. And if people like it, that's fantastic. And if they don't, they can move on to whatever it is they do like. Not everyone's going to like the kind of music that Kings of Dust is because it's very 70s, hard rock. You know, the songs are long. They're over four minutes long. There's a lot of music going on. There's a lot of creativity and moving parts similar to what Badlands did or what Jake does in Patina. It's not the lowest common denominator. So, you know, we wrote the songs in Kings and the stuff that we did in Badlands. I know what Jake does in in, uh, Red Dragon. It's what he, he writes what he likes. I write what I like. And if other people like it, that's great. But that's not why I do it. I don't do it so people will go, oh, wow, check that out. That's really cool. Because a lot of people aren't going to like it. But the people that do like it and do get it, those are the ones that uh, make, you know, they appreciate what you do. And it kind of, that kind of resonates with you and makes it worthwhile. But in the end, it's really just about expressing yourself. Mm. Greg, how how up to date had you kept? kept with how the music business work now because in a lot of ways it's a, it's a complete 180 to you know from the early 90s um, and you've all you've had all the downloading and everything that's going on and the difficulty now in in getting getting signed um with, with there's hardly any labels out there anymore i know you have the choice of releasing it yourself which you can do but to actually get out there and play shows and everything now it, it's a lot different than what it used to be yeah, well, because of downloading and YouTube and all that other stuff, there's a zillion bands. A lot of people make their own product and, and uh, to varying degrees of success or even quality. And, um, I mean, when I was in Badlands, we had an actual record company. We are signed to Atlantic, and, you know, they footed the bill. I mean, eventually we owed them the money, which is why I don't ever see any royalty checks because we still owe them money. <laughs> but... um it was all about the machine. You know, you had the big machine behind you. There's still some versions of that. I mean, I know bands like, I think Greta Van Fleet is on like a major label, so they have the big machine behind them. But there's a lot of bands that are on Frontier. And Frontier doesn't, you kind of, they pay you a fairly nominal amount of money to make a record and then you're kind of on your own if you're going to go on tour and you're going to you know go do shows you're doing it on your own you you're booking it yourself that you don't have the tour support like you had back in the uh 70s 80s and 90s now you basically pay for it yourself which is why you see a lot of bands doing the paid meet and greet it's not because they're trying to put a bunch of money in their pocket they're trying to make enough money to stay on the road to go to the next town because you just can't without the record company behind you and their money. And because record sales, they're, you know, hard copy CD or record sales aren't as great as downloads. As everyone knows, you don't make any money on downloads. So, you know, if you have a record that sells 5,000 copies, that's considered to be pretty successful when you put it together with the downloads, but you're not making any money from those downloads. So going on the road, you have to really figure out a way to stay out there, and you sometimes you have to be pretty creative. Hmm. So let's talk. It's a, you're, it's a different. It's a completely different world. I, I and I was aware of that. I, I, I hate to jump you here, but I was aware of how that was before I even got in Red Drag Cartel again. I knew that everything was pretty screwed up, and it's not. It's never going back to the way it was. So this is just the new normal, and you have to figure out a way to deal with. It. Hmm. So, Greg, let's talk about putting the band together, Kings of Dust Band. Are, are all the guys local to you, or are any of them from, like, far away? 
Uh, they're all local now, but none of them are from here. The singer Michael Beck, who I started the band with uh, about seven years ago, he is from Nebraska and still has ties there. He does a lot of recording. Uh, he, ha he has some studios he works for in Nebraska, so he goes there every three or four months and does recording. Then the guitar player, Ryan McKay, brilliant guitarist, he is from Quincy, Illinois, and he moved here, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe a little bit more and then the drummer jimmy taft um one of my favorite drummers ever um he is from uh, he's gonna kill me but it's either north carolina or south carolina he's from <laughs> one or two. and he moved he moved here back in the late 80s to being a real popular band here that they thought was going to get a record deal and then the phoenix music community is kind of small so everyone kind of knows everybody and so they um ryan and jimmy are not the original guitar player and drummer in the band but they've both been in the band now for a while for a couple of years mm. at least so so you knew them all before you even put the band together uh i knew jimmy uh jimmy and i had some mutual friends Michael, I didn't know at all. The way the band came together was Michael owns a recording studio here, Sound Vision Studios uh, in Tempe, and he wanted to record a couple songs. He was always recording other people's music, so he wanted to record a couple songs of his own. So he knew a drummer who knew a guitar player who knew me. So the four of us got together and we wrote and recorded a, a handful of songs. Because Michael owned the studio, we could kind of take our time. Well, after about a year, the drummer and the guitar player left for their own reasons. And Michael decided that he would like to keep it going because he liked the material that uh, we had in the original version of the project. So we found, I, I, I had heard of Ryan, but I didn't even remember his name. And I, and I called around and I said, there was this guitar player I saw playing with these other guys, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, you're talking about Ryan McKay. And I said, does anyone have his phone number? And I got his phone number and I called him up and he came over and listened to just the demos that we had of like four or five songs. And he said, yeah, I'd love to be involved in that. And then through the course of time, we went through a few different drummers. Well, then I joined Red Dragon Cartel and I was out doing that. And uh, with the intentions of still doing Kings of Dust, it's just that I would just fit it in while I was doing Red Dragon Cartel. And then I got cancer. So I had to quit Red Dragon Cartel. So I could, in 2015, spring of 2015, I quit Red Dragon Cartel to have a cancer treatment. Well, then Anthony was my replacement. And Anthony's a, a good bass player and a good guy. I've known him a long time. I know him and Jake are tight. And uh, so there was not a possibility of me going back into Red Dragon Cartel. It was Anthony's gig now. Mm -hmm. And that was cool. That was cool. Um, I get it. And, uh, Jake and I are still really good friends, but one door closes, another one opens. So because I, I wasn't doing anything, I had been in Red Dragon Cartel. I kind of discovered my love for playing original music again and, and doing the whole deal. I decided that uh, we should keep doing Kings of Dust. So we, uh, I came across Jimmy Taft again. We had not been in contact for a while. I asked him if he wanted to do it. Uh, he said yes, but I even did an interview with someone before I'd even asked him to be in the band, and I announced him as the new drummer in uh, Kings of Dust. He didn't even know that I was going to ask him to be in it. So he found out that he was going to be in the band by me saying that, yeah, our new drummer's Jimmy Taft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, Greg, you brought up Jake there again, and because I've never spoken to you before, uh, were you surprised that he came out of retirement uh, for for Red Dragon Cartel? Like you, you, I don't know how 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 much communication you had with him over the years when he wasn't wasn't out playing. Uh, there was a, a a long period of time, probably of um, at least five years, where we didn't have any communication at all. He was doing his thing, I was doing mine, and I, I didn't really know what he was up to. Um, then he, uh, I went to Vegas to to coach a baseball tournament to coach my son's team at a baseball tournament and i called him and we ended up talking on the phone for about three hours which is really rare because jake doesn't like to talk on the phone 
and um, kind of reacquainted ourselves with what we were, you know, what he was doing, what I was doing. I think the reason that he came out of retirement is I think um, Ron Mancuso kind of convinced him that that he still had an audience. And, and I think Jake's, I've read that he said that he didn't think anyone remembered him anymore. And I think he was surprised to find out that that was the exact opposite. There were a lot of people waiting to see what he was going to do, find out where he'd been, were wondering why he hadn't been in the business. So I wasn't totally surprised by it, but I could understand why he thought that maybe no one cared anymore because when I joined Red Dragon Cartel, um, I had been off the grid for a few years, more than a few years since the late 90s, and I kind of took myself off the grid. I was fine with that. Well, I think what happened to Jake is the same thing that happened to me. Social media is so huge now that, you know, people were, it was in, instantaneous. They, they would you know, Jake, whatever Jake was doing, because you could see him on YouTube and you could see all the, if some, if he played a show, there was tons of people taking videos and pictures and then tons of interviews you can do now because of all the, uh, rock functions that are on social media. I think Jake was probably even more popular than he'd probably ever been because I know that was the case with me. You know, when I got in Red Dragon Cartel, I didn't think anyone would give a damn. I had no idea that people would be so geeked out about Jake and I playing together again. And the funny part is that's, I left Red Dragon Cartel in 2015. I'm still kind of enjoying the happy byproduct of the way social media put you at the forefront of what's going on. And I think that's probably what happened to Jake as well. So I'm, I'm glad that he finally did come out again and because he's so creative. He's such a great guitar player. He's my favorite guitar player of all time. Um, and that includes anyone. Um, I've always liked the way he wrote, you know, he's a great writer. He's his, uh, just the way he goes about his business. It's kind of been a template for how I go about mine as well as far as being a writer and, and all that sort of stuff. So I just think that he has a lot to offer and anything he does is pretty great. I think both Red Dragon Cartel records are great in their own way. And, and uh, I don't know what the next plan for him is, um, but I'm sure whatever it is, it'll be just as uh, cutting edge and musically excellent with integrity as everything else he's ever done. I can only hope to, follow that same sort of thing with what I do in Kings. Hmm. Now, Greg, what was the first song you wrote for this record? Can you remember? Is, are, are, are the songs old or are they all relatively new? Um, the first song that was written for this record that we did, we weren't writing it for this record, but the first song, Mike Petruno and I, who's the original guitar player in, uh, in Kings of Dust before it was even called Kings of Dust, there's a song on there, the last song on the record is called Keep the Spirit Alive. Uh-huh. And that is that is the first song we ever wrote. And uh, that song was kind of, that before that we had just been jamming on ideas. But then when we wrote that song, it kind of made us all think, hmm, there might actually be something here. And actually on that song, the original band, which was Mike Petruno on guitar and Donnie Fargo on drums, they're on that song. That's the only song they're on. And so that's the original recording of that song. Okay. Because the, the record definitely has a sound of a band jamming, playing live in the same room. That's the way it's recorded. Most of that stuff, all those songs, I mean, Like an Ocean is one of the first songs that we wrote along with, say, uh, Let the Ugly Through. Those are three of the older songs on the record, but they kind of set the direction, but on the recording of those songs, there's not one song on there that's more than three takes. And those songs in particular are all one take songs. So Like an Ocean is one take. Keep the Spirit Alive is one take. Uh, Let the Ugly Through is one take. Uh, and, the, and the drums and the bass and the rhythm guitar is all kept from the original recording of us, just the three guys playing in the same room. And that's the way it is. And that's the way I like to do it. I don't like to have 
multiple takes. I like the spontaneity of of uh, creativity. You know, when you just when you hit on it and it's everything's firing on all cylinders, and even if there's something that isn't exactly right, we don't even mess with it. I don't have hardly any overdubs on the record. I mean, where I had to fix something, usually if I screwed it up or it wasn't the way that I wanted it. If it felt good, that was good enough for me. Hmm. And that's very, very similar to how Badlands was done. Hmm. Focus! Whose idea was it to put a snippet of uh, Eddie Money and Black Sabbath in like an ocean? Well, actually, what that is, is um, it was my idea as a what you have there is you have a snippet of Woman from Tokyo by Deep Purple, a snippet of the Immigrant Song by Zeppelin, and then a snippet of uh, Iron Man by Sabbath. Iron Man. I thought it was Eddie Money's Two Tickets to Paradise. I have to go listen to it again. <laughs> well, you know what? Everyone, every, everyone gets something different because I've heard one guy said, oh, why did you put... That was really cool that you put in a God of Vita in there, and I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> whatever someone gets, is, whatever they get is good with me. Okay. Okay. At one time, the joke name of the band, we, we hadn't come up with the name Kings of Dust yet. I hadn't come up with that, and we weren't sure what we were going to call it. And so we were fooling around with the name Deep Black Lead, which would be Deep Purple Black Sabbath. Led Zap- mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we when 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 I wrote that song, I thought at the end of it, I will stick those three parts in there, just because I think it's funny, and um, see what people get out of it. And and it's because not everyone gets it. Some people don't. A lot of people don't ever get the the Zeppelin song in there. They don't exactly hear it. But the way that it's kind of stuck together, some people hear all three. Some people don't hear any of it. Mm. So, I got one. <laughs> you're, you're, you're ahead. You're ahead of the curve. <laughs> so, so Greg, was the original intention to do a full length album because you can release anything any way you want now these days. Yeah, we wanted to do a full record, and if you notice on the record, it's um, it's over an hour of music. It's like almost sixty nine minutes worth of music, thirteen yeah. tracks. Most people don't do that. As I said earlier, our songs are all uh, over four minutes long, and some of them are over five, and that's the way I like. You know, I wasn't writing for a hit single. The fact that anyone likes any of it is a happy accident. And, you know, Like an Ocean is getting played on the radio at, uh, in a number of places, but that's just kind of cool. But we always, I was always thinking more in terms of album as opposed to single, and actually there's so much music on there. We're thinking of putting it on vinyl. If we do, we have to make it a double album. Yeah. Yeah. Old school, all the vinyls back in these days. Well, that's the plan. If we can, you know, I, I didn't do start this project. None of us, you know, we're doing this to make money at it as far as, you know, Hey, you know, I need to buy a new car or whatever. We wanted to make just enough money to kind of finance it, to go on the road a little bit or have some t-shirts made. We just spent a couple grand, we just we sold through the first pressing of the record. We, we had a thousand copies. We sold through that that we were selling on our own, um, and we just ordered our second thousand. Which you know we're again we have no record company. We're paying for it ourselves. So you know we just wanted to make enough money to keep pushing the ball forward. So. If it goes to vinyl, we have, have to make enough money to make to to record it on vinyl. We have to do at least five hundred copies is the minimum you can do, and I don't even know what that's going to cost. But I do know because it's going to be a double album, and I'm not going to start taking songs off there now to make it into a single album. I, the record is what it is. Uh, I do know it's not going to be inexpensive. Mm. So, Greg, how much live work have you been able to put in with the band? Not one show. We have never played live. Okay. So we are planning on playing live. Um, we are going to do some stuff here locally between here and Tucson. And then uh, we have a promoter in Texas and Oklahoma that's trying to arrange seven or eight dates. Um, because I have the guitar store here that I run and everyone else here has a business as well, 
the chances of me getting on a tour bus for three or four months aren't even, it's not even possible. But um, to go out for a week or so here and there, or maybe do some flying dates, those are all possibilities. There's been some talk about us maybe doing a festival or two in Europe, a couple festivals here in the States, and maybe even in Japan because of my, you know, resume with Badlands. Um, I have a history in, in Japan as well. So we are going to play live. And as a matter of fact, we just started rehearsing uh, a couple weeks ago to put together a live show. But true to form we already started writing new songs as well so we're uh we're kind of all over the place but yes we are going to play live are you going to play any badland songs in the set uh i don't think so um i don't think it's really i my affiliation with badlands i'm extremely proud of it um and it kind of with for lack of a better phrase it kind of makes me who i am musically as far as people knowing me I don't think it would be fair to the to the rest of the guys in the band for us to go out there and try to play a Badlands song because I don't think we would sound anything like Badlands. I mean, while I think Michael is a great singer and, and Ryan and Jimmy are both great players, some of the best I've ever played with, I think I'd rather just be compared to us. I mean, people are going to compare us to Badlands anyway, the same way people compare Red Dragon to Badlands, and rightly so. I just think for us, it would be better if uh, we just kind of did our own thing. I mean, who knows? I talked at one time about putting a few seconds of a of some Badlands song at the end of a set at the end of our show, just to again because I would think it's funny. But I don't know whether we'll actually ever do it. Mm, mm. I, I kind of want Kings of Dust to stand on its own. I'm, it's going to get comparisons to Badlands. It doesn't sound like Badlands, but from um from a uh, the place where Badlands comes from, which is a very 70s influenced kind of a hard rock sort of thing. Kings of Dust comes from the same place. Jake and I grew up in the same time period, the same era, and, and his influence and, and my influences are very similar. So the way he writes is very, the way I write is very similar to the way that he writes. And my influences are very similar to his without me trying to make us sound like Badlands any more than he tries to make Red Dragon sound like Badlands. I think those those uh, comparisons will always be there, but I know that Jake wants Red Dragon to stand on its own, and it obviously has. And for me, you know, because most people know me primarily through that band, there'll be some comparisons. Some people may or may not like it. The comparisons may or may not be favorable. I don't know, but Kings of Dust will have to stand on its own, and we know that, and I'm fine with that. And plus, we have so much material, I'm not really... I mean, we probably have six or seven songs written for the next record when we get that far. So, I mean, we we uh, all the guys write. We No matter who writes what, it takes the four of us to make it into a song. So it's been a pretty good process. Mm. Greg, I, I actually applaud you for doing that because there's so many artists out there these days that they kind of have to play the role stuff. And I think some of it is promoter driven um, yeah. that if you want to go and actually not play any of it, I, I do applaud you for taking that stance. I appreciate that. You know, at one point we had a, the, our publicist had a sticker made to put on the disc and on the stick, on the, on the sticker, it said something Greg Chase on bass player from Badlands and and the, the biggest word on the sticker was Badlands and you know Greg Chase on from Badlands new project Kings of Dust and I remember getting the sticker and I went like I said I'm not putting that sticker on there I actually even sent it off to Jake I said uh, I had I, I know what I want to do I want your opinion on it and he gave me his opinion the same thing. I, he said, I don't think it should say Badlands on there. And I said, that's what I think. I don't think it should say Badlands because I'm not trying to channel Badlands here. I'm just doing my own thing. Um, but I understand why people would want to do it that way. I just, for me, uh, you know, when, when, when Jake was in Red, when Red Dragon first started, there was a lot of demand that he play a couple Aussie songs live. So when I was in the band, we did Bark at the Moon and... Uh, a rock and roll rebel and something else I can't remember. And now 
and he just kind of did that because that's what was expected. Now he doesn't play any of that stuff. He just plays, you know, the stuff off of, plays a little bit of Badlands, which he has the right to. He wrote it. And he plays mostly, like, the last tour, I think almost all of it was off Patina. And that's the record he's promoting, and people seem to really like it. So when I go out, I, I don't think Badlands would have any part in what it is I'm doing, other than the fact that I was in Badlands. Mm. Now, Greg, can I just spend a few minutes? Uh, I don't want to keep you all day. We talk a little bit about Dusk. Sure. Um, now, I'll tell you my story with this record. I was a huge fan of the first two albums. And in the early 90s, you're living in Ireland. The magazines aren't really covering hard rock. And I remember there being a little paragraph in this magazine in, in the mid-90s saying that there was a new Badlands record coming out. And, of course, Ray had passed away. And um, I was like, what the hell is this? So I remember there was a specialist heavy metal shop in Dublin, Hard Rock. And I remember going in the week before it came out and ordering the, re- ordering the CD. And the guy behind the counter looked at me like I had two heads and said, are you crazy? I said, like, they're, they've broken up years ago. The singer's dead. And when I went in the following week, the guy put, called me over in the store. And he said, I don't know how you got wind of this, but we got them in and they're selling like hotcakes. I've none left. <laughs> um, like that album was a complete shock to me because as far as I was concerned, the band was done. Um, now, just before that, I remember reading that there was a little bit of dissension in the camp that Ray, I think, wanted to go more commercial and Jake didn't. Um, how true was that? Um, somewhat. I mean, uh, Ray was very influenced by, uh, the make Aerosmith making the, the album pump. And I think Ray wanted to make one final statement. Um, you know, and really when we, when we were done, uh, we were recording Voodoo Highway. We actually got taken out of the studio while we were recording it because Atlantic thought we might have some more commercial songs. And Ray was thinking, I think, that maybe if we had some more commercial songs, we could, again, not to become millionaires, but just to keep the boat afloat, so to speak. So there was some dissension, as you know from reading anything from Jake, you know, like we already talked about, it was never about the commerciality, whether it's commercially viable was never an option, was never an issue, was never an interest. And when the band first got together, that we were all on the same page. But I think as time went on and our second record didn't do as good as our first, I think maybe there was some talk about us. Maybe Ray would have liked us to sell more records. I don't know. I, I mean, but for Jake and I, we had no problem staying the course. So the stuff that you hear on Dusk was the stuff we were writing. It's not any more commercial than anything else. It's great Badlands stuff, but it's not us trying to make a hit record. Mm. So, so when was this recorded, Greg? Was it done after the tour for Voodoo Highway? Yeah, it was actually done during Voodoo Highway. We were we had already been on several months of a tour, and we were getting ready to go out again in about a, a week from from when that was recorded. And Jake and I got a call, and we had been rehearsing just to play live. Um, the way that Jake kind of operates is when it's writing time he writes and it's when it's rehearsal time he rehearses and when it's live time it's live time he doesn't write anymore he doesn't start writing stuff stuff on the road he he didn't really write songs on the road for the next record and then when that tour's over then it's writing time again so we had done a long tour we were still promoting voodoo highway but we had some material that we had written during voodoo highway and some new material since we weren't actually on tour we had maybe six or seven weeks of downtime. So we were writing stuff just for this eventual third Badlands record when this other tour came up. So we decided to go off. We were going to go off and do another three or four month tour. Well, out of the blue, we got a phone call saying, Hey, you got to go down to good night. L- good night LA studios. And you got to record the demos for, they were basically for Sony. And uh, we were off Atlantic by then. And uh, we didn't want to go. We, Jake and I didn't want to go. We were going on the road in a few days. Uh, we didn't think we were ready to record them. Uh, the songs weren't finished. Ray didn't even have lyrics. 
for a lot of it. He just kind of had syllabalizing. But we went down there and recorded everything in one take. It was like 90, it might have been 92, maybe, or 91, the end of 91. I don't know. Yeah, it would have been 91. The spring of 91 is what I want to say. And we went down and recorded all those songs one time. No overdubs, no fixes, no nothing. Boom. One time, the the guy that was producing it wasn't very happy with me and Jake's attitude. We couldn't have cared less. We just wanted to get it over with so we could get ready to go on the road in a couple of days. Well, we were so tight from rehearsing for this tour that we were able to pull all those songs off in one take. Basically, it's as live as a, a live record if you ever get it from Badlands because... We, yeah, that's basically all recorded live. The solos are recorded live. The drum, everything's live. There's not one overdub on there other than when we mixed it years later. Jake and I added a couple backing vocals to one song just to hear what it would sound like. And I think that was on Sunred Sun. Mm. So that's where Shea, that's where Shea Baby comes in because I think he's Keith Olsen's engineer. That's Good Night LA. That's the connection there. Yeah, that's Shea Baby, and he hated me and Jake, and we hated him, too. And <laughs> Jake and I, we were getting ready to go on the road, and Jake and I always brought guns with us. So we would go to shooting ranges when we were on tour. We'd go out somewhere and just shoot guns. And uh, so we, when we went down to the studio, Jake brought a couple of his new guns that he was bringing, and I brought a couple of mine, and we were showing each other these new pistols that we were going to bring on the road. Shea Baby was like, completely aghast at the fact that we would have these handguns in the studio and what the hell are these guys doing with these guns in the studio? (laughs) Then he he said, he said to me, he goes, okay, I want to spend about an hour or so getting your bass sound. I said, nah, I said, plug it in. I'll get my bass sound in a couple minutes, which we did. I know what my bass is supposed to sound like. I didn't need Shea baby to change it. And then he wanted to spend some time with Jake's guitar sound. And he said, nah, I, I, I know what my guitar sounds like. Let's just friggin' record these songs. So that's what we did. We just, he, he, cause he was doing it thinking, okay, if these guys, when they get their next record deal, I'll produce their next record. I'll, you know, I'll be the guy that I'll be their producer. So I'll do this really great job. And him and I, me and him and Jake did not hit it off at all. It couldn't have been a bigger. It couldn't have been a bigger mess. And Jake and I couldn't have given a damn. But you know, I tell you what, it's it's a great document of where we were at that time. It sounds great. He got good sounds. Part of those sounds, though, are the fact that Jake and I knew what our guitar and our bass should sound like. His guitar, my bass. They did spend quite a bit of time on the drum sound. But you know, as you listen to it, Ray doesn't even have lyrics on some of those songs. Yeah, it's amazing. That's what that's what amazes me when I listen to it. He's scatting some of the vocals on it, but he's spot on with the melodies with everything else. It's amazing. Well, the melodies were probably right on, but he was still finding his way vocally, so or uh, lyrically. So some of those songs have complete lyrics, and some have partial lyrics. But he was still finding his way. That's the way Ray wrote. He he didn't write his. He would go in and. The amazing thing about Ray is Ray would sing every rehearsal, every take in the studio, he would sing it. it he did not, he never didn't, there was never a time when Ray said, I'm not going to sing on this. He always sang, and what he was doing is he'd be syllabalizing things to help find his melody, and then he'd add lyrics after he had the melody figured out. Mm, mm. He's the only singer I've ever met that does that, that sings every single take every sound check every rehearsal ray never took a day off if we were jamming a new idea for 45 minutes ray was singing for 45 minutes greg were you in the studio for voodoo highway when he sang in a dream because his voice on that's amazing yeah i was in there for that because um that song was not done and so when we came in to do it that's all that song was something they added on later uh, while we were recording. And so Jeff, Jeff and I had to come in and do what we did on that. So I was there when Ray did sing the vocals of that. Cause I had never heard him sing that, or I'd never heard him sing the, the song about going down to voodoo highway or whatever it's called. The, the silver horses. No, nah, silver horses. Uh, I, we were 
now there's there's one kind of acoustic you can hear Jeff kind of just beating on the floor with his foot. Okay. Uh, I forget the name of the doggone song. So do but, I. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. But I, those two songs we recorded after everything else was recorded, and then we decided to put. They they had the idea to do it, and then they put it on. So I I came back in the studio for both those. They were done on the same day, so I was there when he sang those. Hmm. So when you did the Dusk demos, um, how sure were you of getting a new record deal from them? Uh, pos- we were positive. There were a number of companies that were interested in us, and uh, a lot of people had felt that Atlantic dropped the ball with us, and I would probably agree with them we we didn't really get along with jason flom the guy that was the guy that signed us um we had fired our original manager and had changed managers we liked the managers that we had uh tom hewlett and eddie wenrick they also managed warrant and a bunch of other bands as well the beach boys and the movie booze so we were happy with them we just thought we needed a record company that kind of shared our vision jake's vision and um, I think probably part of the problem with all that was the fact that Ray was sick, um, was in the beginnings of the, near the end of his life there. And, and that kind of made things a little bit skewed as far as what Ray was wanting to do, as opposed to what we were wanting to do. Hmm. So who, who actually owned the demos? The Sony Shea owned Baby. them? Or Shea, Shea Baby. Baby. We did them for Sony. They passed on them. Uh, Shea Baby owned them. So years later, there was all this talk. The reason there's a long period be- between that record coming out and when it was recorded, or the demo, was uh, no one knew who owned it. So there was all this talk. There was some bootleg versions of a few of the songs floating around there. So there was all this talk about the amazing third Badlands record. And so what happened is uh, we found out that Shea Baby owned it, so we had to buy it from him. So he charged us $15,000 to sell us the demos. And then uh, we sold it to the highest bidder in Japan, which I believe was Pony Canyon. I could be wrong. And uh, Jake and I remixed it and uh, put it out there. And like I said, we didn't, the only thing we overdubbed from the original version was Jake wanted to hear what it would sound like with some backing vocals on. Uh, Sun Red Sun, because I think he always envisioned it that way. But again, like I said, it's a really good document from where we were at the time. I think it's a progression. If you listen to the first record, Voodoo Highway is obviously a progression songwriting and instrumentally from the first record. And I think Dusk is a good indication of where we were headed had we, you know, had everything stayed together and everything worked out for the next record and beyond. Mm. There's other unreleased tracks out there. Uh, Yep that aren't on Dusk, were, were they done around the dusk, same time as Dusk, or are they from earlier albums? Uh, there's one from Dusk, there's an unreleased track from uh, Voodoo Highway, and there's a number of unreleased demo tracks, and other tracks that we had done for the first one, and I don't, I know a lot of them are out there, but I think uh, there's four or five songs that the only one that might even have them is me. I'm not even sure if Jake has them. So I have stuff that no one else has. And I don't have any intention of doing anything with it. If Jake wanted copies of them, I would just send them to him and he can do whatever he wants. He's the, he's the main architect of most of that stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, they're his songs. And if he ever decides he wants to put them out, I'm, I'm mm. fine with that. They're, they're really cool songs. I mean, there's, there's songs that hardly anyone's ever heard. Mm. There's, songs we never, there's songs we never played live. Mm. Greg, what about lives? recordings um is there much professionally recorded with the band nothing that we set out to record with as a live record but there's um a number of westwood one videos or live recordings of whole shows there's also a show that we did at the astoria in london near the end of the last tour that was i guess professionally recorded um but none of that was recorded with our intention of making it into a live record. But some of the stuff that's out there is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So before I leave you go, Greg, uh, do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with you or the band? Uh, if you're interested in Kings of Dust, we have a uh, Instagram page, um, Kings of Dust, and then we also have a page on Facebook. So if someone 
is interested in getting a record from us, um, you could always uh, send us a request on Facebook for that. Um, at some point, it may or may not be downloadable. Right now, we're not doing it because you don't make any money at it and we need to make enough money to keep moving it forward. Also, the other thing is when stuff is downloaded, it doesn't sound as good as it does on an actual on vinyl or on, even on a disc. It, mm. it loses it loses something in translation. So um, right now, I don't know if we're going to do it, but if we do do it, it will be a, a ways down the road. Mm. But, you know, there's a good chance that Kings of Dust will be coming to your town. And if you like 70s hard rock with a little something-something extra going on, and you like some jamming guitar with some a lot of moving parts with some great melodies. I mean, Michael Beck's a great singer. He's a great lyricist. He doesn't sing about your standard. I went to a bar and picked up a chick and the next thing you know, she was whatever. <laughs> I, he doesn't, and I don't, I don't go along with that either. So there's some, there's some depth there. Um, like I said, Jimmy and, and Ryan are excellent musicians. Some of the best I've ever played with great songwriters as well, as well and great guys to be around. So when Kings of Dust shows up to your town, come and see us, come and say hey, and I'll even sign your Badlands stuff. All right, Greg, well, thanks for reaching out to me. Uh, the album's really good. It's great to hear a real band play music. I, I appreciate that, and that's kind of was my plan. I wanted something very organic and very real, very visceral, something that people would go, yeah, this is what's missing. And I'm pretty happy with it. I, I, I don't think I could have done it. It's not a perfect record, but it's as good as it's going to get for this one and I'm pretty happy with it I think we I think all of the four of us are so mm. alright Greg well thanks for giving me so much of your time and uh, have a good rest of the day yeah I appreciate the support brother no problem take care of yourself you too thanks right and there you go Richie's long chat with Greg Chason of now Kings of Dust hope you guys enjoyed that one and I'm really glad that Richie did take the opportunity to dig into a few of the Badlands legends as well. It's not too often you get to talk to a member of Badlands and kind of get some of that info back out. So a nice job on his part of taking the opportunity and making it happen. And if you are ever in Phoenix, Arizona, you want to probably head over to 4322 North 7th Avenue, that's right, and uh, check out Bizarre Guitar, because that could be where uh, you may well just find Greg hanging out, and uh, you might want to get some of your Badlands goodies, and more importantly, your new Kings of Dust LP, signed by the man himself. And definitely got to say that... uh, Hearing Richie and Greg talk about some of those great bases that he used to have and stuff. There's a lot of good talk there. I wish I was in on that one because uh, there are some tasty choice stuff that uh, that they were discussing, especially that Thunderbird. Uh, not so much the Entwistle Buzzard. It's a cool guitar, and Greg is right. There's nothing else that looks like it. I don't know. That one never spoke to me, but uh, I always do like Thunderbirds. Just something about that whole T-Bird shape and uh, just the way you can play it when you palm on the bridge and all that. Good stuff. And uh, glad that uh, Richie also delved into some of the uh, great bases that Greg has now and stuff that he had in the past as well. So I know what you're thinking. What is in store for next week? And uh, still a little bit up in the air as far as the whole show itself. But uh, right now we're pretty much settled on. We'll be talking once again with Robin McCauley. For those of you that uh, have been living under a rock, of course, Robin has a big part in the brand new Black Swan project. Yeah, great recording and uh, definitely is uh, still in fine vocal form. So it'll be uh, two Irish guys shooting the shit. That seems to be uh, more or less a definite for next week. And when Richie and Robin get together, there's always some good convo. And then after that, we're not sure exactly what guest number two is or if it's just going to be Robin and Richie and I talking about whatever we talk about. More than likely, we'll probably be discussing some of the uh, some of the Jeff Tate show that we saw a couple weeks back up at the two. And spoiler alert, I will say that uh, Jack Ross has got to be the MVP of that show. Dude's only 19 years old, and he just kills it on bass as part of uh, Jeff's Operation Mind Crime band. Unbelievable. And of course, you know, trying to do Eddie's parts in that band, it's so key. So uh, there's a spoiler alert if you're going to that tour. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on...
metal! Everything else is insignificant. Go home.